to engage in national debates, often acrimonious with politicians and industrialists. One of his finest final battles, which he lost, was for the preservation of the Hetch Hetchy Valley, second only to Muir's beloved Yosemite in pristine beauty, against efforts to submerge it under a reservoir to supply water for San Francisco. There is Muir the scientist, whose explorations of the Yosemite Valley, his uncanny ability to read the runes of canyon walls, convinced him that the valley was formed by glacial action and not by sudden cataclysmic upheaval, the theory accepted by the scientific establishment. For this idea, one opposing scientist called him an ignorant shepherd. But the shepherd was anything but ignorant, and his idea prevailed. There is Muir, the reluctant author, who found writing painful and a poor vehicle for describing real experience, but who wrote profoundly and poetically in ten books and in the nation's most influential magazines and newspapers. There is Muir, the private, reclusive man who avoided crowds, speech-making, and the public spotlight, yet who organized the powerful Sierra Club in 1892 and served as its founding president and who became the father of the national park system. Only Yellowstone preceded his efforts. And there is Muir, the lucky husband, married to an extraordinary woman who gave him two loving daughters and who encouraged his roamings, enabling him to declare his cosmic citizenship, his freedom to wander, and to identify himself as John Muir, Earth, Planet, Universe. Ralph Waldo Emerson kept a list of men who had influenced his life, a list that included the name John Muir. The two met only once, when Emerson visited Yosemite in 1871 with Muir as his guide, but corresponded until the New Englander died in 1882. What did this sheltered philosopher and poetic genius see in the untamed, idealistic man of the mountains that was so influential? Emerson did not elaborate, but a safe answer is that he admired Muir's daring, courage, nobility of character, and his selflessness, all the essentials of heroism. Dale L. Walker Chapter 1 A Place in History If American history were a bookshelf, the story of John Muir's productive life would tuck conveniently between the volumes on the Civil War and World War I. He left home for his first trip of any significance as an independent adult in the fall of 1860 to exhibit his handcrafted wooden clocks and other inventions at the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society Fair in Madison. Within months of his departure, the Republican candidate for president, Abraham Lincoln, won the election, and Southern secessionists pulled the trigger on the Civil War. Largely silent on the subject of the war years, Muir spent them as a student at the University of Wisconsin, or tramping about and working in Canada. One of his younger brothers fled to Canada to dodge the military drafts sweeping Wisconsin, since the family lacked the means to buy a deferment or pay for a substitute, the customary means of draft avoidance at the time. Muir later followed him across the border, where he spent his time hiking and camping, identifying and studying plants in the forest near the Great Lakes, 
He later joined his brother, and the pair worked together in a Canadian sawmill and wood products factory as they awaited the war's conclusion. By today's standards, Muir's avoidance of military service might be judged a cowardly or unpatriotic act. At the time, however, it was neither unusual nor even necessarily frowned upon. The draft was unpopular, and draft riots were widespread, and circumventing conscription by legal means or otherwise was commonplace. Moreover, service may not have been required of Muir as he was not a citizen of the United States. He did not apply for formal citizenship until many years later, when at age 65 he needed a passport to travel outside the country. In any event, his name was never drawn for conscription. Of Southern Reconstruction, Muir had little to say despite traveling widely throughout the South in 1867.